So the Bible context, where is it found in the scriptures? Well, it's in the New Testament. There is an Old Testament, the promised plan of God. There was disaster that befell humanity and God made a promise that there would be a one that would come, uh, one that would crush Satan's head, the snake crusher. And that picture of that one that would come was uh, grown and gotten more detail and uh, uh, wonderful things were taught and, and portrayed about that one that would come. And uh, for several thousand years, that continued until finally Christ was born of a virgin and he grew up and he started a ministry that lasted about three years and he did many wonderful things. He lived a virtuous life. He was sinless in every way. He preached, he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preached, by me, Jesus said, you can have life and life abundantly. He died. He died a vicarious death, a death that was a substitute for us, for you and for me. But he didn't stay dead. He was raised again. And we live in the light of those truths. We, this morning, celebrated the reality of that 2,000 years later. And the Apostle Paul, when addressing the Colossians, over and over again referred to the death of Christ and the life of Christ. They pictured the death of Christ in their baptism. They were buried with him in baptism. And they pictured the resurrection of Christ in their baptism when they were raised again. So, <clears throat> we have the account of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ, those historical events described for us in the four Gospels. <clears throat> in the book of Acts, we find the disciples... Jesus meets with them, and then he ascends. And you remember the scene. As he ascends, as he goes up to sit at the right hand of his father, do you remember it? All the disciples were looking up. And it was like, what does it all mean? What do we do now? Can you sympathize with them? They weren't left to their own. God did instruct them about what it all means in the book of Romans and how then should we live in the book of Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians, how we ought to organize the church in uh, the two books of Timothy and Titus. He gave us instructions he gave us uh, implications of our salvation. He taught us 
through those inspired authors the significance of the death and burial and resurrection and what it means to us. And so Colossians is mentioned, was mentioned already. Philemon is a companion letter to Colossians. Tychicus delivered both of them. Epaphras is mentioned in both of them. Likely, Epaphras, the pastor of that church, although he was a, the Apostle Paul says, a fellow prisoner in Rome at the time of this writing. So think about it. Philemon gets this letter, and at the same time that Philemon gets the letter, there's another letter that's delivered, and it's the letter to the church at Colossae. And so, no doubt, Philemon is reading the letter to the church at Colossae. Now, this letter that was sent to Philemon is a private letter. And so all the things that Philemon is reading in the book of Colossians, in that letter to the Colossians, he's thinking about and mulling it over in his mind. And then he gets this letter, and he reads this, and... There you have it. It's a personal letter. Although it is to the church at your house, and there are a number of people that are mentioned as if they, they uh, knew the letter was being sent. Timothy is mentioned, and uh, Mark, and Aristarchus, and Demas, and Luke, and Epaphras. But it's a different kind of literature, isn't it? It's far different than any other book of the Bible, really, of the New Testament, certainly. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes the books to these churches, and he expands on the great truths of how a man, how a person can be justified before a holy God in the book of Romans. And he in that book of Colossians, refers to the preeminence of Christ and the power of Christ and the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. And you, he is all in all. He is all. But here we have a letter, a slave, a guy. He's not a, necessarily a leader in the church, um, it's a good Christian, but not somebody of great importance. Certainly the slave, Onesimus, wasn't somebody of great importance. It was uh, an issue that came up. Why? <laughs> Why do we find this in the scriptures? I suppose uh, people have wondered that over the years. Why do we have it in the scriptures? We'll come to that in a minute. I want to set, think about the historical context also. <clears throat> it was written, this book, as near as we can tell. To find these things, we have to rummage through the dustbin of history, you know. So it was written in the early 60s, approximately 30 years after the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. So at Colossae, although it is ge geographically removed from Jerusalem, 
there may have been those in Colossae that were living at the time of Christ and may have even witnessed some of the ministry of Christ. We don't know that for sure, but it is within the realm of possibility. Anyway, there was a generation that was living during the time of Christ, and there also was another generation coming up. I mean, after all, where were you 30 years ago? There was a generation coming up that had not known of the historical events surrounding the advent of Christ. So that's the situation. Interestingly, just not long after the book was written, AD 64, Rome burned. It's an important turning point or event in secular history. Um, Nero was the emperor at the time. We know him as Nero, anyway. And uh, he blamed the Christians and so renewed a greater persecution of Christians at that time. If history is any can be trusted, uh, the apostle Peter was crucified upside down in 64 AD. In 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem. 68 AD, Nero dies. At the time of the writing of Philemon and Colossians, Paul is a prisoner. This is his, the first of two imprisonments that Paul suffers, we understand. And he wrote what are called now the prison epistles, that is Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and this little book of Philemon. Uh, this was what has been termed a house arrest. He received visitors. He had quite a number of people around him. His second imprisonment would be when he would write Timothy, the two books of Timothy. And he would be in the Mamertine prison, just really a hole in the ground where people wait for their execution. So there's the biblical context and the historical context. I want, to, want you to <clears throat> think about the immediate scriptural context. And for this, we turn back just a few pages to the book of Colossians. And the message that we heard, Caleb, of course, he dealt with forgiveness last week, but uh, he was focusing on, uh, in the exposition of Colossians, verses 12 through verse 17. Uh, therefore, as the elect of God, holy, beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one, one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. And he goes on, he says, put on love, put on these things, these good things. 
But I want you to look at the preface to this. In verse 10 and 11, here is a command. Put on the new man. New humanity. God is about building and making a new humanity. Put on, put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. The new man is in the image of Christ, the one that create the creator God and the one that created us in him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. And get this next phrase. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It reaches down through the ages. Christ is all and in all. Philemon would have read these words. Paul wrote to the Galatians very similarly, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for as many as of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Who we are on the outside, who we are superficially, is only incidental to who we are essentially. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. Let that truth grip you. It changes everything about your worldview. It changes everything about your practical life. So there is the biblical context, the historical context, and the immediate context. Let's think a little bit about the backstory, if you will. Oh, wait, I don't want to get ahead of myself. What's the purpose of this little book? Well, in a word, forgiveness. <clears throat> of all the human qualities that make men in any sense like God, none is more divine than forgiveness itself. God is a God of forgiveness. When God was speaking to Moses, he described himself, and he said this about himself. He said, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. God is a God of forgiveness. And Jesus came along, and he taught these things. Remember, he taught us to pray. And what did he say? In the Lord's Prayer, we call it the Lord's Prayer, the pattern prayer. Part of that is, forgive us our trespasses. And you're rehearsing it in your mind, aren't you? As we 
forgive those that trespass against us. And then the parable that we examined last week and found in Matthew 18 of the unforgiving servant. So there is teaching of Jesus in prayer, and there is parable, and there is precept, Ephesians 4.32, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And we looked at Colossians 3.13 already, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave you. There is, there is the parable, but that's not real. That's a story that Jesus told to illustrate a point. And there is principle, but that's theoretical. It doesn't mean it ought not be put into practice, but it's theoretical. But here, in this 25 verses, we have a personal example, a real-life problem, a dilemma that must be dealt with. We have hands-on forgiveness here. We have forgiveness on its feet here. A dilemma. You see the Apostle Paul? And he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's thinking about the things that he's already written in the book of Colossians. And God is leading him, to, and he's contemplating all these truths from the New Testament that Jesus taught. That, that is, by the, by the way, I wanted you to understand that the things that are given to us in these letters to the churches and to the pastoral pastors and such are an expansion of and an extension of the things that Jesus Christ taught in the Gospels. So here Paul is mulling these things over and, and uh, he's writing Colossians out and, and here is Onesimus over here. <laughs> And Onesimus is serving him and helping him. And, and uh, he's alongside Paul. And Paul is writing that Christ is all and in all. And he knows the story of, of Onesimus. And he knows that Onesimus was once a slave and that he ran away. And, and what is Paul going to do? Onesimus is essential to Paul's ministry. He loves him in the faith. And what is he going to do? I mean, there's got to be something done here. This just can't stand. I have to send Onesimus back to Philemon. There is the dilemma that Paul faced. Well, now, the backstory is gathered, the, the story. What we have here is the letter that Paul wrote to Philemon, but there is a story behind this letter. We, we understand this story from snippets that we gather from the book of Philemon, but think about it with me. So here is Onesimus, and he is a household slave, one of 60 million in the empire of Rome at the time. 30%, this, these are the estimates, 
of the population of Rome at the time was slave. And so here's Onesimus, and he's in the household of this man, Philemon, and Philemon's a good man. Philemon's a Christian. Philemon is, uh, he's got love, and he's got faith, and he, he's open, he's hospitable, he opens his house to the church. And no doubt the gospel is preached constantly there, and, and uh, Onesimus is not saved. For whatever reason, slavery is a horrible thing. I would never justify, try to justify slavery. But in the cultural context, what is the alternative? You have, Onesimus had a place to stay, relative protection, food to eat, a place to lay his head at night. But for one reason or another, he decides that he wants to run away. Now, because there were so many slaves in, the, the, uh, in Rome, the Romans greatly feared a slave uprising. There are records, historical res- records of some slave uprise, r- uprisings, and the Romans put those down with great cruelty. They could not allow these 60 million to rise up. And so the Romans in their, they were very clever in how to deter things that they thought were evil. And they thought uh, running away from slavery or trying to come out from under the, the uh, slavery, the institution of slavery was an evil. There were laws that were passed forbidding that. Uh, laws that attach to it the death penalty. And so, with great cruelty, the Romans would put down any slave rebellion that came up. And so, think about this in this context, in this story. Philemon runs away from the household, and where is he going to go? Likely, he took off with the silverware or something, something valuable, he, he took off from what we read in the account here. But where, where is he going to go? And what's he going to do? What's he get, where is he going to live? He, no doubt, doesn't want to be found out. He goes to Rome. Between 800,000 and a million people live in the precincts of Rome. And he figures that he can just get lost among the population there and not be found. No doubt life would be hard for a runaway slave. They'd be the homeless, trying to eke out some kind of a living, trying to live from meal to meal. And somehow, accidentally, Onesimus runs into Paul. And we don't know the details of that. Maybe Onesimus, like the prodigal son, came to himself and said, I remember those Christians. And, and Philemon, my master, he talked about Paul. And I've heard that Paul is here in Rome. In any case, somehow he got 
to Paul, and what did Paul do? Paul preached the gospel to Onesimus, and Onesimus got gloriously saved. His life changed completely, and he now, at this present time that Paul is writing this, is serving Paul, ministering to Paul. Paul calls him my son. He calls him, he says at one point, it's like, I'm going to send him back to you, Philemon, but it's like tearing out my guts to send him to you because he's so important to me. Tearing out my heart, I guess we would say. So there's the, the story, backstory, by Philemon. Let's look at the text here for a few minutes. Paul begins with... Uh, the way that most of his letters begin, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our, bother, our brother. Uh, and anyway, giving, announcing who it is that's writing the letter and to who the letter is addressed. Uh, <clears throat> in many of Paul's letters, he writes this similar greeting, but one thing is left out. In many of the letters that Paul writes he refers to his apostleship. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the Romans, called to be an apostle to the Corinthians. Paul, an apostle to the Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians. But here, he doesn't say that. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now, wait a minute. He was a prisoner of Rome. Why would he say such a thing? Well, perspective is everything. And Paul recognized that he was not there for no purpose at all, that God was in control of his life, and he, in the sentiment of Old Testament Joseph, God means this for good. Not you, my brothers, Joseph said, but God. God, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And this is the way Paul addresses Philemon. He mentions his uh, imprisonment or uh, his bonds. He mentions it four times in this letter. <clears throat> so there is Timothy, our brother, Student, son, beloved son, heir to Paul's ministry. To Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. And to Aphia and Archippus. We surmise that maybe this is the wife of Philemon and older son of Philemon in that house. Why? Because... In your house, it's plural. Um, Archippus is mentioned in Colossians chapter 4. Uh, Take heed to the ministry, Paul writes to Archippus. Archippus. <laughs> uh, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. So here is this. And then also he addresses it to the church that is in your house. So 
Philemon is a rather relatively wealthy man. He is a brother. He is saved. And uh, he is hospitable. He is opening up his home to the church. By the way, historical records, the first record of a building used for a church was in uh, 246 A.D. So apparently people didn't meet in dedicated church buildings like we have, but in homes. And then he says common greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, the source of all blessings for the uh, Christian life. Paul doesn't write this lightly. And peace, the result of all the grace that is bestowed in the uh, Christian life. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, A repetition of God our Father in Lord Jesus Christ suggests an equality. Maybe more than suggests an equality. And then he addresses Philemon. He says, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers. Hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and the saints. You see, the Apostle Paul is going to, if you look down at verse uh, 10, uh, verse 9, he says, I appeal to you. In verse 10, I appeal to you. The word parakaleo. We, the noun form is a paraclete, uh, what the Holy Spirit is to us, a comforter. Uh, one that comes alongside, and this is what the Apostle Paul is doing in this letter, is he is appealing to, Ones- or to Philemon. He's coming alongside as a blo- brother, and he's making an appeal to Philemon for something. And he begins his appeal, almost every uh, Every section of this letter has to do with that appeal. How is it that he is appealing the argument that he is making? And the first thing that he says is, I'm praying for you. I love you, it is, uh, Philemon, and I'm praying for you. It is a precious thing, is it not? When someone comes up to you and tells you that they're praying for you. Especially when you know that they really are. Sometimes we say that and we don't. (laughs) But when someone is serious about that and we recognize it, it's a blessed thing for us. I love it if you tell me you're praying for me because I need prayer. I need to know what direction to take in my life. I need to know uh, the things of the scriptures. I need to uh, be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so the Apostle Paul is, is making a connection with Philemon here. I'm praying for you, Philemon. <clears throat> and he mentions his 
uh, character. He's, he, he's not only a believer, but he's living out that Christian life. A hearing of your love and faith. which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. He's fulfilling the command, love the Lord God with all your heart. And the second, love your brethren. And he's fulfilling that. He's doing these things. And he then says something that's difficult, really, it's a difficult arrangement of words for us. Uh, he says that the sharing, in our translation it reads, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you. Awkward grammatically. I don't know how it appeared to those, that, those first readers in Colossae but for our understanding, first of all, he mentions fellowship. The sharing is koinonia, the verb form. So this, what is, Caleb has mentioned this concept. It appears in, in Colossians, the koinonia of us, the fellowship. Why are you here this morning? Why is it that we gather on Sunday mornings? I was taught many years ago now, hmm, See, I was 25, 27, and taught from the pulpit that fellowship, koinonia, is the joint participation in a common cause or interest. What is our common interest? The Lord Jesus Christ in his plan, in his program. What is our cause? To see him made known in this world by whatever means we can. And we have a commonality in it. This is what we are about. And there, there is a participation. <laughs> We're not called to just sit in the pew occasionally. We're called to be active. So this koinonia is in the share, the, the, it's a verb form, the sharing of your faith, the koinonia, the sharing of your faith. So this is a common thing for Christians to be sharing their faith in many different ways, verbally, by acts. But he says that that sharing of your faith might become effective. The word is energes. It comes right through into the English energy, the Physics definition of energy is the ability to do work. And that, that's the, uh, the word effective. It may be effective. It might do something. It might be powerful. It might do something. It might become in the acknowledgement of every good thing that God has done in you. So there is a future prospect to this idea. And Paul is appealing to Philemon and he's saying, God is at work in you. 
you're sharing your faith by many means. And I pray that it will be energized. It will do, it will accomplish in Christ what His will is. We have great joy and consolation in your love. So twice he mentions the love of Philemon. And I believe that this is an appeal. You, who are you, Philemon? That's the, every moral appeal that is made to us in our Christian life has its root. Who are you? You are in Christ. Christ is in you. That's who you are. And live in that way is the appeal from the Apostle Paul. This, before he even makes mention of what he wants Philemon to do. And then in verse 8, he says, therefore, this being true, and then he, a little bit of uh, side note here. Though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting. Why could Paul be bold? Well, he's an apostle. He has the authority of God like no one now living has the authority of God. He had the authority to command. But this is not his approach. Yes, he is an apostle, but he says, I, for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Uh, an appeal to me to do something voluntarily is likely to get more result than if you command me to do something. Is that not true with you? Uh, parents, take heed. <laughs> you, and when your children are little, you can command them, and you should, in an authoritative fashion, and you can command them because they are little, and you can actually make them do what you want them to do, right? But when they get to be 18, and there ought to be a progression in this making an appeal. Now, I'm not saying that uh, you ought not to be authoritative with your children. However, you ought to build this rapport with children so that you can make an appeal to them. So here Paul is making this appeal. And he's making the appeal on the basis of who Philemon is. And he's making an appeal on the basis of not only that, but look at what he says in the next phrase, as being such a one as Paul the aged. Uh, Paul is, if by all accounts, about 56 years old at this time. And some have scoffed at that. Paul is saying this tongue-in-cheek, but I don't think so. I think Paul, Paul suffered physically, and a person can be very old while young in years. Read uh, 
2 Corinthians chapter 11, about verse 24 and following. So, Paul says, I appeal to you, Philemon, I'm old. And I get that. I always have stories to tell. Sometimes I get to thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't tell stories so much because I'm getting a reputation for that. But I have experiences. I have things that have gone on in my life that I wish you knew about because maybe they will help you in your Christian life. Maybe I have seen things and done things that you might avoid in your Christian life if I could just somehow relate to you some of those things. So Paul appeals to Philemon on the basis of his age. I'm old. I'm aged, Philemon. But also, he says in the next breath, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He appeals to Philemon on the basis of his imprisonment, his chains, his bonds. Why would he do such a thing as that? I think this. Philemon had suffered a wrong at the hands of Onesimus. Onesimus had betrayed him. Onesimus had stolen from him. Onesimus had done Philemon a wrong. Paul had been done a wrong. He didn't deserve to be in prison, and yet he was in prison. Do you see the appeal? Yeah, I'm in prison, and he doesn't elaborate on this, but I wonder if it didn't work on Philemon's mind in this way. I'm in prison, I've suffered wrong, and I'm going to call on you to receive, to forgive one that has done you wrong. So he appeals to Philemon on the basis of who Philemon is and his approach, not authoritative approach, but a loving brother approach. I want to say this also. God puts people in authority in churches, does he not? Pastor Caleb, Pastor Matt, elders. I told <laughs> Caleb when he was uh, called upon to be the pastor here, I told him, I'll submit to your authority, Caleb. There is authority in churches but, beloved, they are brothers in Christ. And in their authority, they still address us as beloved in Christ. Just aside, I guess. So, <clears throat> the apostle is pleading with 
appealing to Philemon. And he comes to the issue. I appeal to you, verse 10, look at it. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. My son Onesimus. And then he goes on and elaborates on that idea of being a son whom I have begotten in my chains. And what he's saying is, I birthed Onesimus. Now, Paul would agree that the Holy Spirit is the one that's involved in the new birth. But beloved, the Holy Spirit uses people to preach the gospel to us, does he not? Were you not preached the gospel by some human, someone that loved you and wanted you to know about Christ, wanted you to know that he died for you? Yes, uh, in that sense, the Apostle Paul birthed Onesimus while he was in prison. So he appeals to Philemon on the basis that Onesimus is born again. Philemon is a brother in Christ. Onesimus is in Christ. And so he goes on and he says, who, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. He's converted. He once was faithless, and now he is faithful. He is helpful. So, Paul says, I'm sending him back. That was a big thing. Few little words, but that was a big thing. I suppose Paul spoke with Onesimus about this. You know what Onesimus was facing? He was going back to his master who had the legal right to put him to death. In fact, I imagine those, un, those pagans that surrounded uh, Philemon would want Onesimus to be put to death. Philemon would have to resist the culture around him to not make an example of him. Onesimus was a danger to the cultural order if, the social order, if he was allowed to live. So there was this, and he knew this. And he went back, and Paul sent him back, and Paul knew this. I'm sending him back, and here he comes with probably the most powerful statement. It's an imperative. Look at the next phrase. You, therefore, receive him. Receive him. Now, nowhere in the letter is found the word forgive. But the essence of forgiveness is found in the word receive him. 
It's beautiful. When you forgive someone, you are to receive him. Welcome him. Think about this. Let me read for you in the few minutes that we have left here. Let me read for you the parable that the Lord Jesus told about the, we know it as the story of the prodigal son. In verse, he went, uh, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. He divided to them his livelihood. And the younger uh, gathered it all together and journeyed to a far country and wasted his substance with li- uh, prodigal living. But when he spent all, there was a great famine in the land. He began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the, with the pods which the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. And here was the condition of this one who had betrayed the love of a father. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I wonder, (laughs) in my imagination, you suppose Onesimus had been exposed to this parable? You suppose that Philemon knew anything about this parable? And he arose and came to his father. But get this, this is receiving him. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. And he had compassion. And he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, he had rehearsed this speech, right? Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he didn't get any more out of his mouth. And the father said to his servants, bring on the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For thus my son was dead and is alive. Again, he was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. This is receiving someone with open arms, welcoming someone lavishly, extravagantly, eagerly. That's forgiveness. And that's what Paul is calling upon Philemon to do. You, therefore, receive him. That is my own heart, my own innards, whom I wish to keep with me, Paul says. That on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. For, but without your consent, I want to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. Do you see he's, the Apostle Paul is appealing to, to his conscience. Who are you, Philemon? Who am I, Philemon? Who is Onesimus, Philemon? Don't, I'm not going to compel you 
authoritatively, but think about these things. And then, in a wonderful way, the Apostle Paul indulges in uh, sanctified speculation. He says, for perhaps... He departed for a while for this purpose that you might receive him forever. Just perhaps, think about it. You know, there is something in Christians that relates to this. When bad things happen to us, almost always we think, well, you know, God is at work and maybe this bad thing that happened to me, God will work it out for good. You ever think that? I do. This cancer, maybe it'll work out for good. I lost this job. Maybe God is at work and this is going to do something to further his kingdom. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. That's the Christian mindset. And, and the Apostle Paul appeals to Philemon in this, uh, in this way that perhaps the reason why Onesimus left you and betrayed you and stole from you. He's not, not condoning any of this, not justifying it whatsoever, but he's saying God is such a God that will bring out from the evil of people, bring out some good things, and maybe, just maybe, this is the purpose that you might receive him forever. Go back to uh, to uh, verse 6, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of God is at work in you, Philemon. And this may be the way in which God is going to allow you to share your faith. And then he says that you might receive him, and he adds that word, forever. Philemon, you're going to be forever with Onesimus. <laughs> Beloved, the person that you don't want to forgive, the Christian that you don't want to forgive, you're going to live with them forever. So forgive them now. Welcome them now. Receive them now. But then... He adds, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. <laughs> this, I, I read this in a commentary, it's not original with me, but this is the seed that broke the stone, that shattered the stone, that caused the ed edifice of the institution of slavery to fall. And that's the way God works in society. Jesus didn't lead a march on Jerusalem for social justice. Jesus worked in individuals, making a new man. And so the apostle appeals to Philemon in the fact that not only are you in Christ, Philemon, but Onesimus is in Christ. 
And now your relationship is a beloved brother relationship. Did Onesimus quit having the status of a slave? I don't know, but it sure changed the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. Certainly did. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And then the Apostle Paul raises this issue of being a, a partner, a, a, a koinonion, that is the noun form of that verb that he mentioned in chapters or in verse six. <clears throat> if you count me as a partner, and there he goes again, receive him as you would me. There's a, if he's wronged you, Paul says, there is the issue of restitution. And Paul recognizes that, and he says this, if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. <laughs> Onesimus is standing there. Onesimus is a slave. He doesn't have anything. He can't repay. He can't return what he stole. It's all gone. And he can't repay his master. But he has one that will pay his master. And do you see what Paul's doing here? I think it's a pointer to Christ and Philemon's redemption in Christ. He had a debt that he couldn't pay. Christ paid a debt that he didn't owe. And that is Philemon's salvation. So Apostle Paul is appealing. Brother Paul is appealing to Philemon. And he, not only, he's serious about this matter of uh, putting that which Onesimus owed on his account because he says this, says this, I am, by Paul, am writing with my own hand. You see what he's doing here? He is signing a contract. I will pay. And he signed it with his own hand. Most of the time, Paul used what's called an amanuensis, one that wrote for him. And he somehow dictated what to write. But here and on occasion in the scriptures, he mentions that he is writing it with his own hand. And here it is. It's a contract. I will repay. And then he says this interesting thing. And many commentators kind of, they don't snarl at this. They don't like this. And he says, not to mention you to you that you owe me even your own self besides. What is, what is he appealing to here? Well, there's an, a place in, in Corinthians, chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, that the Apostle Paul says this, and I think this is a key to this idea here. What have you gotten that you did not receive? What have you gotten that you did not receive? In your Christian life, you climb up and grab it for yourself? <laughs> no. We received by God's free gift His grace. Yes, the means was through faith, but God freely gave us 
And Paul is, I think, appealing to this principle. Philemon, don't you know that you have received grace, a gift in your life? Think about it, Philemon. How you approach other people ought to be framed in this frame. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. And then the last thing that the Apostle Paul appeals to, having confidence in your obedience. This phrase reminded me of my mother. My mother never expected me to do things wrong. She always expected me to act properly. And when I didn't, my mom was actually shocked. <laughs> I don't know why she would be, but she actually was. And I saw it on her face. She was, she was devastated that I would do such a thing. And the Apostle Paul is appealing to Philemon by saying, I know the Holy Spirit is within you, and you're working out these things in your life, the Christian life. Christ is all for you. And you are living in accord with the truths that you've heard from the Word of God. And so I'm confident in your obedience. You're going to do even more than I say. <laughs> and then the last thing he says, but meanwhile, prepare a place for me. I'm coming to you. I think that also was an appeal. I'm going to come and see what's going on in your life. Philemon, what has happened? I want, to, I want to be part of it. I want to know. And that's the way it is left. He does offer a farewell. Well, time is way gone here. What practical, oh my, what practical application could we make in regard to forgiveness? Give as Christ has forgiven you lavishly, eagerly, voluntarily, extravagantly. God has forgiven you in that way. Forgive others.